Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. I'll start with a quote from Trotsky. If the Communist Party is the party of revolutionary hope, then fascism as a mass movement is the party of counter-revolutionary despair. I think this is not a bad beginning to understanding fascism. In a period of extreme turbulence and revolutionary crisis, the working class and communism represents the hope of humanity, a better society, a society of equality, tolerance, education, culture, all the most advanced and developed aspects, uh, cultural and economical aspects of capitalism raised to an even higher level. and, and uh, it's not popular to talk about enlightenment, but that's certainly what we what we were striving for: enlightened society, uh, where education is generalized and so on, and culture is accessible to everyone. Now, fascism is the very opposite. And Trotsky, I will be referring a lot to Trotsky here because, uh, out of the great Marxist thinkers, he is the one who actually. Uh, um, observed uh, and commented on the events firsthand as he was active politically active in the 1930s and 20s of course um, when these the when we had development of fascist regimes uh, in europe and trotsky referred to fascism as being this distilled essence of the culture of imperialism and it's not hard to see why uh, so what he referred to is despair of course extreme jingoism, nationalism, ignorance, racism, although not always anti-Semitism, but that obviously is part of it, bigotry, misogyny. Now, all these things are what we associate usually with fascists and uh, uh, the fascist neo-Nazi groups and so on. We can look at the likes of EDL. Uh, They're really like graduates. They just football hooligans with a bit of a political... Uh, program slightly attached onto it and they represent all the worst aspects of uh, British society ignorant bigoted drunk there's real dregs of society to be honest I encountered a few uh, in the pub once and it was really not a pleasant experience and in such crises as the ones that we're passing through the working class has multiple chances to take power and transform society into the kind of society we want to see and in doing that, it pulls behind it the petty bourgeois leaders who look to the proletariat for leadership. One of the characteristics of a petty bourgeoisie is that it's uh, very uh, disparate, it's not cohesive, and it, it's incapable of forming any kind of political program uh, to change society and to tr- take society in a different direction. Uh, all it can do is fall behind one of the two contending classes uh, in capitalist society. That is the, uh, the ruling class, the capitalist class, or the bourgeoisie, or the proletariat, the working class. Now, but if the working class fails to take power, uh, and I will be referring again to Germany quite a lot here, because obviously the regime of Hitler is the most 
let's see, uh, the most famous example of uh, a fascist regime. Um, and the working class had multiple uh, opportunities to take power in Germany between 1918 and 1924. It got very close, uh, basically, uh, to take power and then to transform society, not just Germany, but there would have been the beginning of a revolution in the whole of uh, Europe, France, Britain, and so on. And it would have completely changed uh, the course of history. But because it failed to take power, certain things uh, happened which would otherwise not have happened, such as uh, history. If the heroic struggles of the worker don't lead to the final victory of the proletariat and the defeat of capital, as the abolition of capitalism and the introduction of social society across the world, now, if the workers fail to put themselves at the head of the nation and present a way out of the crisis, then after a period of inconclusive struggle, and in the case of Germany, you had uh, a period which lasted for around eight, 1918 to 1932, so that's 14 years uh, which this struggle took place in various degrees of intensity. Um, so after a period of inconclusive struggle, those petty bourgeois layers who originally would uh, at times side with the proletariat and be ready to uh, propel the uh, proletariat or the working class to power, they will be seeking another way out. Um, they will seeking order, uh, stability, normality, if we talk about it in those terms, as we often hear today, basically a, uh, a return to capitalist stability. So the econ economy can grow and so on, all, the, all those kind of things, but also the order, the disorder that often is associated with revolution, particularly from a petty bourgeois point of view, shopkeepers don't like all these demonstrations going around disrupting their business and so on. Um, so there will be a, a, these petty bourgeois layers will be drawn to the camp of order, as we call it, as it's sometimes referred to. At the same time, the bourgeois are looking for a, a seeking an end to the crisis, the social, political, and economic crisis. And the only way they can do that is by uh, completely smashing the working class, completely smashing the organizations of the working class. Obviously, they couldn't actually get rid of the working class itself, although they abolished themselves. Um, and this is where fascism uh, comes in. So with the help of the money and organizational ability from the big bourgeoisie, the fascists begun or be, will do in these situations begin the most vicious propaganda campaign directed against workers, against the trade unions, against the labor movement, against strikes and against demonstrations, uh, as well as obviously combined with uh, the racism, which is often also a field which has been sown by, um, in the whole preceding period by the capitalist press, who constantly sown the seeds of racism in society in order to uh, basically kind of create a scapegoat for uh, the ills of capitalism itself. And obviously anti-Semitism was not the creation of Hitler or the fascists at all. It had been around in Germany for decades um, and had been around on the right wing of German politics for decades, uh, not on the left at all. Um, so uh, these fields had already been sown and the fascists came in to reap them in a sense. And this propaganda uh, by the bourgeois press and so on, uh, as well as the fascists, they imbue the, uh, the petty bourgeois layers with a vicious hatred against the working class. They blame it, the whole thing, uh, the whole crisis and everything is all the fault of the workers, all the fault of the trade union leaders and so on. And this, on these, in these circumstances, 
when these festive bourgeois layers move in this direction, this is where fascism can find the mass base. And in Germany, this happened not in 1920, not in 1923 or 1924 or 26, but in 1929, it began to happen after Wall Street crash. So from be, being a party of 2.6% in the election of 1928, the Nazi party became a party of 18% in 1930. So you have this massive leap when precisely under these conditions as I described. And not 37% uh, in the first election of 1932. And this, uh, this creation of this mass movement then also enables these fascist gangs to begin a, a campaign of um, intimidation and physical attacks on the working class organizations themselves. And this um, pushing them off the streets, intimidating them, stopping them from holding demonstrations, stopping them from going, holding picket lines, stopping of, uh, attacking strikes and, and so on. And this, begins to, this is the beginning of the process of destroying the organization of the proletariat. And that will be, uh, Again, another quote from Trotsky. It may be said that fascism is the act of placing the petty bourgeoisie at the disposal of its most bitter enemies, that is the big bourgeoisie. In this way, big capital ruins the middle classes and then with the help of hired fascist demagogues incites the despairing petty bourgeoisie against the worker. The bourgeois regime can be preserved only by such murderous means as these. For ho how long? Until it is overthrown by the proletarian revolution. And Trotsky wrote this in an article called The Collapse of Bourgeois Democracy. So this is the element of scapegoating. The workers, as well as if we talk about Germany, the Jewish people or immigrants in other cases, take the blame for the devastation caused by the capitalist crisis. And they often are combined them on the part of a fascist by demagogic attacks on international finance capital, which uh, is another byword in that case for um, uh, Jewish people or Jewish bankers. Um, uh, but this is really just a smokescreen to defend, yes, international finance capital, um, uh, but of the German variety. So they're just against basically foreign international capital. Uh, not the German variety, um, which is, but, it, but it's obvious that the German banks were the ones who were making the, all the farmers and the small, uh, the petty bourgeoisie of uh, Germany. They were, they, it was the German banks who were making them destitute, uh, not uh, the international capital, um, whether they were headed by Jewish or uh, uh, ethnic Germans is completely beside the point. For these reasons, uh, it is completely false to conceive of fascism as an ideological movement, first and foremost. In fact, there's very little ideological coherence to their ideas. The political program they have is quite secondary. Fascism really has only one aim, and that is the complete destruction of the working class organizations and the atomization of the working class. So, um, so I think that's quite important to understand that distinction. It's not so much like that they have, think up some, if you actually look at what they write, it's complete gobbledygook, a lot of it. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, it doesn't, and also if you look at different fascist regimes, they have quite different sort of ideological sort of 
a scheme as they, they propose. But what they all have in common, were all fascist uh, groups uh, um, have in common, and what makes them really the fascist is this um, attempt to physical, an attempt to physically exterminate the working class organizations. And it is worth for a moment to contrast fascism with other types of reactionary regimes. Now there have been a lot of many different types of right-wing dictatorships over the past two centuries. In general, we would refer to these uh, by the Marxist terminology that we use to refer to these are Bonapartist regimes. And these are named after Napoleon the first or the second, I'm not quite sure which one, but either way it applies to both of them. And this is a phenomenon Bonapartism is a phenomena which arises in class, different class societies, not just capitalism, where the class struggle reaches fever pitch and can no longer be contained within the traditional forms of class rule. And the old ruling class is unable to reestablish this authority, whilst at the same time the rising class, in the case of capitalism, working class, uh, has been unable to take power and basically replace the society with a new one. Now this deadlock between the classes enabled the st state to acquire a certain degree of independence vis-a-vis -vis the ruling class. And it strikes blows against left and right, both against the ruling class and the rising class. And it is able to stabilize the situation on that basis and restore order. So although, uh, as, as I said, it is a regime which rises above the ruling class, it differentiates itself from the ruling class, it requires a certain independence from the ruling class. In the last analysis, it still defends the existing property relations and existing order. Um, and so uh, Trotsky, and he's describing here a government which uh, came just before Hitler, uh, so which was, so you had the Bonapartist regime which preceded the fascist regime uh, in Hitler, uh, sorry, in Germany at the time. And he said the following, the true axis of the present government passes through the police, the bureaucracy, the military clique. It is a military police dictatorship with which we are confronted, barely concealed with the decorations of parliamentarism. But the government of the Sabre, as the judge arbiter of the nation, that's just what Bonapartism is. And the key point here is that Bonapartism is the rule by the Sabre or the sword. Uh, and that's, um, there's a rule by repression, by force, rather than by ideological or uh, means. Um, so you have the police and the army are there to repress any kind of resistance against capitalism, uh, rather than being, like usually is the case, by, um, by the trade union bureaucracy, the social democratic leaders, and so on, uh, as well as the, uh, the parliamentary games and uh, corruption that exists in parliament. So, the key, so, and that's also why typically Bonapartist regimes are uh, military, uh, so come to power by force of, by a military coup. So you have like General Pinochet, for example, uh, coming to power in a military coup. You have the Junta in Greece, etc., etc. All these kind of military dictatorships that, that capture power. And Latin America was full of them uh, in the, um, second half of the 20th century, obviously all backed by the CIA. Um, now Trotsky makes another point, which I think is very pertinent to the present situation. 
and to the discussion of fascism and Bonapartism. He says, the strength of finance capital does not reside in its ability to establish a government of any kind and at any time according to its wish. It does not possess this faculty. So that is the ruling class cannot simply change government the political re regimes at the will, at the whim. Uh, they have to act within certain parameters. So it's not the case that like the ruling class wakes up one day, thinks the workers are a bit bothersome and therefore they sort of say, why well, we're just gonna have dictatorship now. It doesn't work that way because obviously <laughs> in any kind of change like that will face the resistance of the working class. So only under certain circumstances are they able to do that. Uh, and also under, only, only under certain circumstances will they want to do that as well. The strength of finance capital does not reside, uh, re sorry, the strength of finance capital resides in the fact that every non-politarian government is forced to serve finance capital or better yet, the finance capital possesses the possibility of substitution for each one of its systems of domination that decays and other systems corresponding better to the change conditions. And what this means is, regardless of which kind of regime, as long as it's not a working, uh, a proletarian dictatorship or the worker seizing power, the abolition of capitalism, as long as that doesn't happen, any kind of regime that you have will in one way or another have to be forced to uh, defend uh, the, the capitalist world order and finance capital, right? Or the capitalist um, order and finance capital. So, and, and this, uh, this also kind of, this also makes, if you think about what has happened taking place in Egypt, for example, over the last few years. Now, uh, the Mubarak regime was defended by international finance capital. It was replaced by the Morsi regime, right? Which, so you have a revolutionary uprising. It's one government is replaced by another uh, and actually the whole regime collapsed momentarily. But actually the new government of Morsi also defended the interests of capitalism and the interest of international finance capital. It was doomed to do that. Um, of imperialism, maybe it's a better word in international finance capital. Um, and uh, so you have, or in the case of, for example, in Spain, you had the Franco regime, which gave play, took place and then transformed itself into the Bonapartist regime, which then became uh, a democracy. You can read about that in Alan's book about the Spanish transition. And in the, all of these regimes defended the interest of finance capital. Uh, but obviously each one was replaced by the Republican Spain was replaced by the fascist uh, regime because uh, of the needs of the capitalists uh, at that time. And then again, when that regime, a Franco regime, exhausted itself and it failed to get, control the masses, control the class struggle, it had to be replaced with another regime, which was uh, the, uh, the new democracy. Uh, or the bourgeois democracy, which came afterwards, but which retained a lot of the elements of the old Franco dictatorship. Now, the key point here is that we, unless you break the rule of capital by abolishing the private ownership of the means of production, any government will be forced to uh, more or less follow in the dictates of capital. And when it comes to Bonapartism, it is not the policy of the capitalist class that they choose, in general, they would prefer democracy because of its inherent safety valves, its uh, ability to fool the workers to a certain extent, 
and uh, it provides also uh, safe, like I said, safety valves. You can keep a better understanding and check on the situation through elections and various other means, uh, as well as it keeps uh, the state and the state bureaucracy in check. So it's a cheaper, less corrupt form of government. But Bonapartism is capital adopting itself to a situation of extreme class struggle where the working class has been uh, has been unable to take power, but they yet they need to crush the workers in order to reestablish uh, order and the rule of capital. 20 minutes. Um, and he says, Trotsky continues, there's no epoch in human history so saturated with antagonism as ours. Under a too high tension of class and international animosities, the fuses, inverted commas, of democracy blow out. Hence the short circuits of dictatorship. So it's basically the pressure of class struggle, the democracy or bourgeois democracy can no longer contain it. And certain, uh, um, and this fuses as he talks about, blow out. Therefore, it is also fruitless to attempt to appeal to the ruling class to defend democracy using pretty phrases about legality and uh, the wonders of uh, democracy and democratic values, etc. When the ruling class needs and desires to change its democratic mass and rule by means of repression, and this really goes for, it doesn't have to go all the way towards um, a Bonapartist regime, but also when they take various kinds of anti-democratic measures like you know, uh, restricting trade union rights and so on under normal and the general system of bourgeois democracy. The attempt to avoid this situation and force the class struggle into legal, peaceful, normal, in inverted commas, method is tantamount to attempt to hold back the tide because the class struggle can no, cannot, cannot be contained. The uncertain condition can no longer be contained in under remits of what is the lawful uh, way of it conducting itself, which is prescribed by uh, the law under capitalism. Um, and any attempt to keep it within those narrow frameworks, particularly as the bourgeoisie is constantly restricting that framework, will only disarm the working class and hand it over, gagged and bound to the kind tender mercies of a military dictatorship. And hence we have the disastrous refusal of the Allende government, for example, in Chile in 1972-73, to arm the workers. When the workers saw that military coup was coming, they were demanding to be armed, and the government refused to give them arms. And the re result was, and they were trusting instead to the uh, democratic generals like Pinochet, um, who was one of the ones that stopped the pre or been involved in the repression of a previous coup. But these democratic generals were then what the government relied itself on rather than the working class itself uh, and the constitution and all these kinds of excuses. And any appeals to legality are completely worthless when you get to that point. When the bourgeoisie has, attempt, is, has decided to go down that route uh, of, uh, of completely smash, of smashing the workers using the state apparatus in this way, then uh, this is complete, any attempt to appeal to legality, appeal to the bourgeois state is effectively, is uh, completely pointless. And every time this has happened, the social democrats, but in spite of that, every time this has happened, the social democrats and the reformist leaders always attempt to force the class struggle down those channels. So in particular, appeals to the constitution, the constitutional court and so on. And that happened in Germany in 1932, happened in Austria uh, in 1933. Um, 
And it happened in Austria a few years later, and they never basically learned their lesson. Um, it's also important to remember that not all Bonapartist regimes are the same. Some are extremely weak and unstable uh, and incapable of holding back the workers uh, with um, the uh, insufficient, basically, to hold back the working class and the class struggle. And you can see that, for example, in the present day with the coup that took place in uh, Bolivia last year, which has now completely collapsed. You can see it to some in Honduras, where although they introduced, they had a coup government and so on, and are trying, have been trying to suppress the class struggle. In reality, they've completely failed. You can also see the same with the Sisi, al-Sisi government in Egypt, which although it is, um, has had a bit more success than the previous two mentions, uh, it's, still, uh, it's still quite clear that the revolution has not played out its role and the government is extremely nervous and anxious for any kind of sign of movement on the behalf of the working class. Um, so you could contrast that, for example, with then the regime of Pinochet, which lasted for a number of decades, or the regime of Franco, which lasted even longer. Frank, fascist regimes develop into Bonapartist regimes. Uh, so once they pass through one stage, they're moving to a second stage. Uh, there's not very much time in between the two, but, uh, but these regimes uh, so started off as fascist movements because of the complete destruction of working class. They seem to have a long staying power. And they, uh, these regimes uh, have a greater degree of stability. So, and just to make some differences between these kind of Bonapartist regimes uh, of like the military coup style regimes and a fascist regime. Now the difference between those is in the early stages where the fascist regime is, bases itself on the mass mobilizations of the petty bourgeois layers on the streets. And it's these, uh, um, those uh, street gangs who are basically propelled into power and used to smash the working class. It's quite different than to uh, what you saw, for example, in Chile then with the military coup where the state is using um, its repressive arm to uh, destroy the working class. And it, there are, and this has certain implications, um, which I'm afraid I don't have too much time to go into. But the difference is that the mass movement of the petty bourgeoisie and the lumpens and lumpen proletariat, the class elements in society, is the base of a fascist regime, whereas a Bonapartist regime is based on the state, uh, state itself and the bourgeois state. So if this was fascism historically, what role does it play today? And we haven't really seen a proper fascist regime since uh, Hitler and Franco or Mussolini. And we must consider what the reasons for that is. Now, one of the reasons is that ruling class, to some extent, have learned a lesson. Uh, Hitler really went too far. He, he got beyond their control, and they, they were incapable of uh, controlling him. They, they fought, when they first uh, put him in power, they fought, he, they were, he was in the minority in the government, and the only three ministers, something like that, in the government. And they thought they could control him, they would use his, uh, his SA troops on the streets to smash the workers, destroy the working class organizations. But then they would then shift towards a more normal bourgeois government. But once the working class had been smashed, 
then really there wasn't anything in particular to stop Hitler from taking power uh, himself and strengthening his descriptive power. And eventually he, he forced all the other bourgeois parties into a merger with the Nazi party effectively. Uh, and he forced the ruling class basically to, into backing him as the whole. Uh, and when the president died, oh, oh sorry, he died in the, um, then he became then the fearer, as they call it, of the nation. So this plan of the ruling class went awry, uh, and the whole conduct of Hitler was completely. Well, sometimes he would generally speaking act into the ruling class, but some of his, some of the fanaticism of him, uh, his fanaticism, was completely um, completely destroyed. Uh, the Germany, there, his conduct in World War Two. Basically, destroyed German uh, German imperialism for decades. It hasn't really recovered to this day. He, the, the disastrous outcome of the World War II was that Germany was divided, with uh, this, the Soviet Union extending a sphere of influence all the way into the center of Germany, and to even taking and capturing the capital of Berlin. The Holocaust itself was in no way on, in the program of the bourgeoisie, who uh, was partly made of Jewish people who had no intention uh, of this taking place at all. They thought they could play games basically with this question, with this racist question. I, had no, I don't think they were uh, even had in their minds that Hitler would go as far as he did in this question. So the ruling class are not keen to repeat this particular experience. Uh, although, that being said, it doesn't mean that they won't support fascist groups. It doesn't mean that they won't use fascist groups, but it is unlikely, uh, or they'd be very, very reluctant to do ever put them in power again because uh, of what took place at that time. Cannot be completely ruled out, but it's, it's unlikely. 30 minutes. The second uh, point that has to be made is the strength of the working class, and it's probably the most important point. Throughout the 1920s, uh, the strength of the Nazi party was concentrated in urban professionals, civil servants, military officers, teachers, university lecturers, and students. But these layers today is no basis of fascism whatsoever. In fact, all of these layers who at that time had various kinds of privileges vis-a-vis the working class, today you, they have lost all those privileges and even more are under attack. And really, if you're looking at unions and groups of workers which are more prone to strike action, it's those groups, which was not the case in the 20s and 30s. Also, you consider the other groups of the uh, petty bourgeoisie, which they base themselves on, which is the farmers, which barely exist in advanced capitalist countries today. Uh, and you look at um, uh, shopkeepers and, and so on, also been completely destroyed by the development of capitalism over the last uh, uh, 100 years, actually, if you count all the way back to 1920. These, I mean, you now have in every high street is completely uh, covered with Tesco's and uh, Sainsbury's and so on, and the small shopkeepers they used to uh, own and run these shops or clothing shops, whatever kind of shops really, they are now uh, very limited in numbers indeed. And they were much more integrated into a kind of working class community. Um, so the working class have been massively strengthened and the social uh, reserves, as we call it, of uh, capitalism or of uh, capital has been massively weakened because of the economic development. And this is really what Marx and Engels described in the Communist Manifesto when they said that capitalism produces its own grave diggers. 
all the massive investments that have gone into development of industry have destroyed these other professions and created uh, a, a much more cohesive working class, really, um, or strong working class. Today, there's therefore, there's not much sense in a crying wolf about fascist takeovers. It's not really on the agenda at all at this moment in time. And throughout history, there has been a tendency of uh, working class leaders or leaders of um, various left-wing parties and trade unions to cry wolf or to overestimate the strength of fascism and the strength of reaction. This was true also in the 1920s, for example, and Trotsky is heavily critical of this. In 1923, he writes, Brandler, who was the leader of the Communist Party at that time, in, in Germany, in spite of all our warnings, monstrously exaggerated the forces of fascism. From the wrong evaluation of the relationship of forces to a hesitating, evasive, defensive, and cowardly policy, this destroyed the revolution. So a wrong analysis of the balance of forces was disastrous, and overestimation of fascism was part of that. And this actually crucial element that led to the defeat of the German Revolution, which in turn then uh, prepared eventually, some years down the line, prepared the way for Hitler to take power. Um, and I will skip ahead a little bit here now. Uh, now, what is the balance of forces today? It is entirely clear that Trump and Bolsonaro, whatever their personal opinions, uh, and I'm not going to try to mind read them, they have some rather strange ideas in their heads regardless. Um, they are completely incapable of, of uh, smashing the working class, even if they wanted to. Uh, they aren't very capable, as, as uh, Trotsky said, of rule by the sword. Of course, there are fascist elements supporting these regimes, and some of them are quite capable of committing individual atrocities or um, heinous acts against individual members of uh, uh, trade unions or uh, so on or even like racist attacks as we've seen against churches and mosques and so on. Yet these, ga uh, these gangs are very uh, weak in the grand scheme of things. And I think one of the very illustrative examples of this is uh, that of the Golden Dawn in Greece. Now, uh, you probably saw, but just uh, a week or so ago, the Golden Dawn was banned as a party and the murderers of Pavlos Fissas, who was a left-wing rapper, um, were uh, committed to jail. Now this is quite unusual uh, in, in capitalism. Usually fascists are allowed to, a certain leeway in how they handle uh, their affairs and they're allowed to carry out attacks without much hindrance from the state. But when this murder took place, there was such a backlash, there was such a response on behalf of working class people, particularly in their neighborhood, but in general in Greece, that they got scared. They got scared. They thought that this has the potential of provoking a much bigger movement uh, over may possibly to an insurrection and civil war if they persisted. And so rather than going down that route, they thought, well, we're just going to lock this. They felt compelled to lock up uh, these fascists who committed the crime. And then again, now, when the trial was taking place, there was again mass protests outside court. Um, demanding that these uh, guys be put in prison, which also took place. And it's clear that the ruling class do not feel confident of letting these guys run, uh, run riot uh, and cause a lot of trouble because of the response that is created by uh, mobilization of the workers. And there are numerous examples of this, uh, of the state being put under pressure, state and ruling class, by the mass movement in this way. 
And really, the working class has to only lift the little finger these days. This is not the case in the 1920s and so on. The fascists were much stronger at that time. And the ruling class was firmer uh, in their ability to uh, let them run riot. But actually today, even what was we say must be relatively little effort on the part of the working class can have a big impact in terms of the ruling class pulling back, not being uh, brave or not having the uh, being brave enough or not uh, being too worried about taking this any further. Now, just a few minutes on how we fight fascism. I think the first thing which flows from this analysis is the importance of politics. We must fight fascism in a political way. Um, and it flows from our analysis that this is really fascism and as well as Bonapartism, we're talking about like military dictatorships and so on. It's something that comes from the crisis of a capitalist system. And it says, and that gives us also a hint of uh, the politics we need to fight it. So the obvious conclusion is that we need to have demands and slogans that can unite the working class in the struggle against the ills of capitalism and the crisis, against austerity, against evictions, against unemployment, etc. To even to some extent, we would even stretch this out to if we were at the uh, if the working class was united behind its own demands, we would even stretch this to the point of uh, we would also try to win over the petty bourgeois layers with these demands finding more means of extending credits, canceling loans to those small businesses that have been badly affected by the crisis, allowing them to uh, basically lease of life and out of the noose of finance capital. We would be in favor of such measures, basically measures to win over these layers to the course of a proletarian revolution. But it's a bit, and that is kind of the point that uh, the only real way of stopping fascism really stopping the barbarism of capitalism, which is kind of the same thing, is for the workers to take power and transform society into a socialist society. The crisis of a capitalist system means that the ruling class can no longer rule in the way that it used to. It means that the democracy in the way that we knew it cannot function in the same way. It's not really on the cards of abolishing democracy because they need it. They need the trade union leaders, they need the social democratic party leaders, in order to hold back the working class. But this, this class trial can no longer reality be contained within the framework that existed in the previous period. So if you compare this class struggle that exists now, obviously you see the increasing attempts and so on to legislate against trade unions, against uh, sometimes against political parties and political movements. Uh, the attempt to introduce spying, we have recently in Britain, you have the prevent agenda, etc, etc, various kind of measures against what they call extremism. All this is a sign of that the, uh, the capitalist system is under threat and they're taking measures to defend it from uh, the rising working class. Um, and the ruling class will be looking for a way to deal a mortal blow to this movement at some point, but at the moment the, the pendulum is swinging in the right direction. They really have very little um, ability to do so. The working class will be given multiple uh, opportunities for itself to deal a mortal blow against the capitalist class to take power. But if it does, uh, and, and Bonapartism fascism really only comes into play when the demoralization and exhaustion sets in, uh, which will uh, it will take some time. 
even at the height of the revolution, you can see that from Venezuela, for example, the way that the stamina of that revolution uh, to still hold out against reaction to this day, in spite of uh, it not having achieved the same. The struggle against fascism is therefore intimately linked to the struggle for socialism. Quoting Trotsky again. To bring the petty bourgeoisie to its side, the proletariat must win its confidence. And for that, it must have confidence in its own strength. It must have a clear program of action and must be ready to struggle for power by all possible means. So that's the means, that's the uh, method of winning, um, winning the non-proletarian layers of the class by starting by, with a firm program and a firm program of, uh, political program and a program of action. Therefore, it, to abandon our political program in the name of a struggle against fascism would be criminal and merely prepare the way precisely for what we're trying to avoid. Um, yet some of the left, left, when it comes to fascism, simply leave their program at the door. All the criticism of capitalism, all the criticism of bourgeois democracy all go out the window in favor of the most sycophantic like defense of uh, the existing uh, status quo. And we have, they make alliances with all kinds of bourgeois, whether the Tories, the Catholic Church or whatever, in order to def defend democracy or oppose racism. But it's these kind of vague um, uh, slogans. Of course, we defend democratic rights, uh, particularly those of the working class. And of course, we oppose racism. But we cannot leave left cover to various reactionary politicians who one day make pious speeches about anti-racism, Black History Month, etc., and the next day fan the flames of these very same of racism, anti-immigration sentiment, and curtailed trade union rights. Uh, what kind of democracy is it if you can't go on strike and if you can't join a union? Um, and the same thing goes then for lesser evilism, which is a complete disaster. We should be thankful that there is no serious risk of fascism in the US today. Otherwise, another election, which is one taking place now, where the left and the bulk of the trade unions uh, fall behind the Democrats would be an excellent preparation for a fascist takeover. This strategy has been tried and tested a million times and it always failed. It's often forgotten, but the Social Democrats, while refusing to, uh, to form a bloc with, with the communists in Germany in 1932, as well as before, continuously supported one reactionary government after another in the lead up to the seizure of power by Hitler in order to defend against Nazism and fascism. That was their thing. We support this right-wing bourgeois uh, politician after another in order to stop fascism. Obviously that didn't work out very well. Trump incidentally is very much a child of lesser evilism. He reflects uh, the lack of working class political alternative in the United States at the same time as the two traditional parties of the ruling class in uh, the United States have been thoroughly discredited. And here that that's, uh, gives rise on the one hand to Trump and on the other hand to Bernie Sanders. Uh, they're both kind of products of the same process. Historically, lesser evilism was known as popular frontism. The idea being that the working class should ally with the progressive bourgeoisie uh, in order to defend democracy or to support national independence struggles or something like that. 40 minutes. Um, and then only after this has been achieved, once democracy had been defended or um, um, the um, well, imperialism had been defeated or whatever it might be, 
only then after that has taken place, then we could go on to the struggle for socialism. This was a complete disaster, both in this, in this Chinese revolution, it was a disaster in the Spanish revolution. If they had adopted this policy in the Cuban revolution, there would have been a disaster as well. And it would have been a disaster in the Russian revolution in 1917, because they're basically disarming the proletariat, pushing back uh, the class struggle uh, and uh, uh, demoralizing the proletariat. And thereby the only uh, force that could stop uh, fascism is, um, uh, is being uh, destroyed. Um, and this idea of the popular front came from the Stalinists who claim to be defending legacy of Lenin, but it's nothing of the sort. In fact, Lenin uh, subjected liberals to the most merciless criticism. In fact, the whole period leading up to 1917, you have him constantly attacking liberals for one thing after, uh, because of the treacherous role that they played. He, and his slogan in the middle of um, uh, 19, in, during 1917 was no trust in the provisional government something which then uh, the Stalinists forgot all about uh, in subsequent years. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, what then should be our policy? The premise of posing the question about how to fight fascism is that the workers are not just ready to take the offensive, to take power. They might be objectively ready, but they're not yet organizationally prepared for, uh, or maybe consciously prepared for this step. Um, if they were, the problem would be posed kind of differently. What we're dealing with here instead, in the first instance, is a defensive struggle, defending against an offensive uh, by the bourgeoisie. And what we need to do is to create the strongest workers united front, defend against these idea, uh, attacks. So in defense of demonstrations, in defense of democratic rights, in defense of trade union rights, in defense of pickets, we defend the freedom of the working class to organize. Now this replies to whether or not democracy as a whole is under attack or general the trade union rights in, on a national scale is uh, under attack or whether we're dealing with isolated fascist attacks on picket lines and on demonstrations. The specifics of the platform United Action depends on the circumstances, but it has to be concrete somewhere or another. In the case of far-right violence, self-defense must be organized, whether it is uh, the self-defense of picket lines, demonstrations, or neighborhoods. And it should be added, as Trotsky also points out, that such a defense, uh, if it, doesn't, if it doesn't also go on the offense, will, it's not a very good defense. The best defense sometimes is an offense. The struggle against, uh, in the end, against fascism and Bonapartism is completely linked to the struggle of socialism. Now, just to sum up, after the second election in 1932, Hitler, the slightly reduced vote chair, was invited to form a government by Hindenburg, the right-wing president, who had just been elected with the support of the Social Democrats. This was a fateful moment Four months later, the labor movement was crushed. The whole preceding period was a textbook example of how not to behave. The social democrats defended the capitalist system in the midst of the deepest recession. They practiced the policy of lesser evilism, paving the way for ever more right-wing governments. The communist party under Stalinist leadership declared that the social democrats were the main enemy, a complete ultra left turn, and they refused even to attempt any kind of united front, and quite consciously so. 
It went to the absurd extent that communist workers would attack social democrat meetings, sometimes with the collaboration of Nazi bands. First Hitler, then us, was the mad idea that was imprinted, implanted in the minds of the Communist Party militants. When the right wing attacked the social democratic chief of police in Prussia, the communists joined the right wing in the referendum uh, to depose the social democrat chief of police. Uh, and there was a lot of bad blood between the communist and social democratic workers, but it could have been overcome by the communist leadership had they made a serious appeal for a united front uh, on a limited program. Together, they had the militias uh, that could have, uh, that were bigger than anything the fascists could muster. And they could have turned the tide on the fascists, which by the end of 1932 were showing signs of weakness, of having beginnings of exhaustion in their movement. And they could have, uh, the Communist Party, the, this, the Communist Party could have won over the Social Democrats to their side. On a local level, the communists and the Social Democratic workers joined in attempts local attempts at united fronts and resisting the fascists but without the national coordinated campaign these were doomed to isolation and failures so for us today we must learn the lessons not so much because fascism around the corner but because the revolutionary strategy and tactics that can be learned is applicable to all kinds of circumstances if we are fight to fight effectively not against the mass fascist movement which is nowhere to be seen but against the ruling class we need to learn lessons of the united front if we are to fight against fascist gangs, which do exist, we must learn these lessons as well. We must learn that the working class must trust in its own forces, that the state will not protect us against reaction. Uh, and most importantly, before there is, will be a serious threat to, of a bonus party's dictatorship in Britain, the working class will have multiple chances to take power, and we must prepare for that with all our efforts. Because if we go back to the quote I started to lead off with, the working class and communism represent the hope of humanity, and it is our job to make it reality. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider, or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.